Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today we've got another absolute legend on the show, the rap god Casual from Hieroglyphics. I was honored to sit down and chat about the craft. We go really in deep on rhyming and lyricism. His new album, Big Head Science, some of our past collaborations, and his projections for the future of the music industry. This is Casual. Hey, man, how you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Oh, good, man. Just got set up. What do you got going on today? Shit, about to set up camp, but I'm riding to the site right now, so I got some time. Let's do it. Yeah, you've been off the grid for a minute, huh? But you've been doing the RV thing, right? Yep, yes, sir. That's cool. It's a good time to get away. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, especially since we've been quarantined so much. So for anybody who doesn't know, we met a few years back. I opened up on the uh, Eugene date when you did the Fear Itself 20th anniversary tour. I just remember, like, all the MCs standing in the front row watching you work. It was like a master class with all the egos and hip hop, it, it was one of those rare moments where you see everyone in the room kind of like take a beat and show respect, you know? That's love, man. I sometimes enjoy those intimate engagements when you know you got some real hip hoppers. Maybe it was the so so turnout, but the people who are there are like into it. And that's how that one seemed to turn out. And so that was really cool. It was one of those rare moments where it was like a venue that doesn't normally do those kind of shows and it was like a weekday and you know whatever but like yeah everyone who was in that room was blown away and and i think the mcs were like kind of shown yeah the bar is up here guys <laughs> you're not there yet and then i i hit you up to do that redefine the flow track you were like yo i never get to rap over this tempo like nobody sends me fast tracks anymore and uh yeah, it was a challenge, you know what I mean? And that's always welcoming, playing with the same tools all the time. You can get bored sometimes. So when someone injects uh, some new energy into your sphere, you're like, oh, he hears me over this, but let me see what he hears, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, and it, it was kind of like, if you listen to that beat, it was actually like a an upright bass sample, so it was kind of jazzy, like some Fear Itself shit, but it was actually you know, run through like a stomp box to give it some extra grit and stuff. And I just thought, man, I would love to hear him get like real acrobatic at this speed again, you know? Yeah, well, it was fun. Fast forward to my last record, Figures of Speech, we did a part two. And uh, man, <laughs> I remember when you recorded that verse, I literally had to just cut out the beat when you started rapping because it was so, the patterns were just so out of left field, doing that like, well, I've been an obvious problem. Yeah. When a dominant rhyme is dropping, <laughs> hominins on him. <laughs> like, oh my you, God. You inspired that, yo. That's how it is. And people don't know sometimes. I was listening to your verse and I was like, I can't come like him, but I got to be on that level though. You know what I'm saying? But sometimes when you get into those rapid tempo cadences, it's limited to where you're going to place the rhymes and stuff. And I figured this little blabbery tongue thing that I can do when I say certain words, the way that certain words attach to each other will allow me to roll my tongue a little bit. It won't add another syllable, but it gives it this little, I don't know what the 
y'all made it up or something. But it, it, it definitely worked in on that song and in that style. But like I said, that was inspired by me listening to what you laid and feeling like, okay, I got to come, but I got to give them something different. You know what I'm saying? And so... That's what it turned out to be. Well, yeah, I love that because, I mean, I think a lot of people, the tendency is when someone is going off really fast that you're like, all right, well, I'm going to cram more syllables in there. I'm going to take it to the next level. I'm going to one up. And you're like, nah, man, I'm just going to come from another angle. Yeah, I mean, I literally had to stop the show and just like mute the track to let that space play out. And it just took the song and elevated it, you know. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was fun work, man. That shit is always good. Uh, so you did a, a live stream pretty recently where you were going through some of your earliest demos, and I, I was curious, like, when all this started for you. Well, junior high school, even elementary, rapid. I started rapid. I wrote my version to Roxanne, Roxanne, real Roxanne. I wanted to battle her. Nice. Uh, and so I wrote my own disc. And then I came outside on the block and said it to some of my friends, and they didn't believe that I wrote it. <laughs> and so that was flattering, but it was like I was trying to prove I did write it, so I got the idea to go write your own rap. Don't say nothing about Roxanne. Say something about the people who said you didn't write it. You yeah, know yeah. And I went and wrote that rap, and when I came out and said that rap the next day or two, Cats was like, oh, you're kind of raw, John. You know what I'm saying? That's <laughs> how I got my first approval. That's pretty awesome, man. When did, uh, I mean, did you grow up with Dell and the Hyro dudes, or did you come to them later on? No, we all actually known each other since grade school. I think it's interesting, like, of that era, you've got the Souls and Hyro and Freestyle Fellowship kind of at the same time we're on the east coast you know tribe's been out for a minute wu-tang is about to drop and like you guys sort of did it the opposite direction where they dropped a group record and then all the solo joints and you guys actually built up everyone's rep and then came together after the fact i mean it took what five six years for a high roll album to come together yeah we wasn't really planning on doing one that was the idea we came up with after we all lost our major label deals and we wanted to hit the ground running and we thought the best thing to do would not be to put out individual records we was like let's all record one together that's such a classic man i third eye vision was like the first underground rap cd i ever had that line that dell said on at the helm life ain't about busting caps and fucking bitches it's about fluency and rhyming ingenuity and like actually one of the very first hooks i wrote was a, a flip on doing my thing <laughs> oh that's dope yeah. yeah that shit was just ingrained in me from the early and i didn't realize because you know like at that age like well none of the beastie boys had solo records Run DMC at the time didn't have solo records, and so I wasn't really looking for anybody's solo shit. I just played that record on repeat, yeah. you know? <laughs> it wasn't until yeah. later that I started, like, digging into your guys' actual shit. Yeah, it happened like that for a lot of people. A lot of people met us as hieroglyphics, and then uh, they'll deeper into our solo projects, which was kind of like the reason why we recorded the Hyro record. And so even though some of those songs are considered classics themselves after we got dropped we landed on a group record and we used that 
myself, our personal careers back to the plot. Well, it's kind of genius, too, because, I mean, like, everyone gets a solo track on the record, so you're getting to know everybody's individual voices, and the iconic branding of the whole thing, it's like every fucking person knows Hyro. <laughs> Even if you don't know Hyro, you know the logo, the imagery, you know, you know the name. Yeah. So how long did that record actually take to make? Because you guys got, what, like nine members or something? Like two or three years. We was at Hyde Street Studios recording in San Francisco. It might have took a couple years just because of time to coordinate and stuff like that. A project of that scale is so hard when you have so many different collaborators and all their different lives and schedules going on. Exactly, but it turned out well, and I don't mind collaborating like that. I even like using technology. I know some people feel you need to sit in the studio together for all songs, but I like using technology to get art projects done, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I remember... uh, I don't know, six months ago or something, I hit you up and was like, hey, we should do a video for that last song we did. And then all the pandemic shit happened. And I was like, you know what? One of these days, we should just film our own shit separately and just make that a video. <laughs> like, we can do it with email and whatever, you know? We can make it work. Yeah, That's not hard. So you mentioned the major label stuff. I mean, you had this line on the barcode, actually, on the new record where you said, when Big was alive, could have signed with Diddy and them. And obviously the first record was on Jive. I mean, what what is that referring to? You had a bidding war going on or what? And I was just referring to uh, people from New York used to tell me Biggie was a fan of mine. And I wish I would have had the benefit of meeting him while he was alive, but I never did. But if you do the research, you can find that Biggie Smalls rapped to a instrumental that I produced. He rapped to, uh, I didn't mean to, on Mr. C's mixtape. Oh, that's I mean, awesome. I mean, to know? Maybe Mr. C picked that beat, but the fact that he thought it was hot and rapped to it or whatever was big for me. But Maddie C is the person who introduced Biggie Smalls to Puffy. And Maddie C came to Oakland back in the 90s to see me. And on a trip, he told me that Biggie Smalls used to pull up on the corner in Brooklyn. You know, they'd be standing on the corner. He kind of pointed to some guys who were standing on my block. He like, see those guys? We'd be outside like that. And Biggie Smalls would pull up playing your music. And they'll look at us and say, what y'all know about this? <laughs> and it'll turn up castable. And I was like, oh, wow, that's wonderful. That's fucking awesome, man. Yeah, that's crazy to me. I mean, you're also uh, a mean producer as well. You know, you're definitely known for your lyricism, but I mean, you produced a lot of that first record. You produced, like, I was talking to uh, my friend Carnage, the executioner, about you. He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, actually, it's crazy because he produced Catch a Bad One, and then Dell produced That's How It Is. Yeah, that's exactly how it happened. Uh, I mean, it wasn't like we was like, yo, I'm going to produce your single, you produce mine, but. Those songs just happen to be chosen as singles. But this process was like right after high school, you know, then some of those songs we were cutting school to make. <laughs> and so we wasn't thinking business-wise, like, yo, you do my We just worked together like that back then. So were you guys like, tracking your own stuff prior to getting signed? I mean, were you, did you have like a DIY studio? How did you start 
actually putting songs together. Well, we used to go to the studio in Berkeley called the Onion Lab first. Shout out to Onion. I looked at his equipment and asked my mom to buy a few things. And she made that investment. And we started recording in my mom's basement. That's awesome. Were you like making beats sort of out of necessity or was that something that you were just also passionate about? Kind of like out of necessity and also I just wanted to have some beats. You know what I mean? Dale was making all the beats and then they plus would tinker and learn how to make beats. I figured I wanted to learn how to make myself some beats too. Do you have a favorite like beat producer in, in the group? Someone who you really click with the most? No, nah, I mean, me and Teray probably make the most stuff because the sound is... He, he makes a lot of angry beats or mean beats or beats that are intense. Not to say others don't, but, you know, Ray know my style real good. Now, digging through your um, catalog a little bit, he think he raw actually dropped on 9-11. And you're in kind of... Rare company with that. Jay-Z's Blueprint, another New York act, a hardcore band, Agnostic Front, also dropped that day. I mean, was that similar to what's going on now where people are having to cancel tours? And, I mean, how did that affect the release of the album? Oh, it was horrible. I couldn't even talk about my record because of all the stuff that was going on in the world. Like, people who want to hear you promote a record when uh, the World Trade Center just blew up. Yeah. So I woke up on that morning ready to, you know, I mean, Instagram wasn't out. So I think MySpace was out. And I woke up on that morning, like, I couldn't promote my record and look right. You know what I mean? I mean, did you, like, have to postpone a tour and reschedule stuff? or? No. Since that was sort of, um, it was pre-YouTube and after your, your major label stuff, were, were you making music videos and doing other kinds of promo at that point? Yeah, and they cost a lot more and you didn't have the uh, sensibility to do them yourself back then. And so it was still stuff like that, but it's still, the market was affected by a national disaster or whatever. Do you feel like Smash Rockwell was sort of like redeeming that? You still had some breakbeat groovy shit. I mean, like, I Gotta Get Down is one of my favorites. Yeah, I did, and that was to make sure that it kept in the tradition of traditionally what I did. You know, that was like Alchemist's first groove. He had grooves before that, but that one was like big for both of us. I didn't even realize that was him. Yeah, Alchemist produced that. And so that was big for both of us, really, during that time period. 
And one of the things that I, I just love about your shit is that it's always trying to top yourself. You're always trying to push how far you can take the bar work to the next level. And when you did that Rap God remix, man, that was fucking awesome. You know, it's rare that you hear anyone actually respond to Eminem and actually be on the level, you know? And, and the Cash Martin remix, I love that shit too, man. Yeah. But my only juices was coming from the fact that he was Eminem, you know what I'm saying, and that I, you know, couldn't just be mediocre on it. Well, it was kind um, of perfect for you because, I mean, he he used the rap god name, and you're like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. There, no, uh, there was no ill will in my heart. It was like, oh, if I don't defend my moniker, I'll look like well, something I'm not. I don't care. It's not about the quality of the lyrics from the other rapper, especially since it's not a battle. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Or nothing like that. It's just simply like, oh, you didn't know I was calling myself rap guy. So let me just at least let you know in the way that we do in hip-hop. You feel me? You still had some lines in there, Adam. I mean, I love that whole, like, you know, you've been on some devilish shit. If I give you the title, then heaven will split. (laughs) Well, you gotta say, so I say, I say, you Yes. I know that M has cited Hyro as as an influence before. Did you ever hear behind the scenes or anything about him hearing that or reacting to that? Uh, no, definitely not. And I, I definitely wouldn't have expected a response because I always put the shoe on the other foot. All I possibly expected was a chuckle from him inside of his own body if he even took the time to listen to it. But I wouldn't have responded to me either. Because it didn't solicit the response. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, certain things step on your toes in a way that you're like, I got to say something back. But I purposely didn't drop too many of those type of lugs. I only dropped one that he could have took personal about the Mariah shit stuff. Yeah, yeah. That was the only thing that I, and I was like, okay, let me chill on that because that's (laughs) weak. I mean, that ain't really my goal. My goal is just to let people know that, oh, he well and again i mean it's kind of like we talked about on redefine the flow his whole thing on that was mostly the speed stuff i mean he switched flows a lot but your whole approach to this was like all right yeah i can rap fast but like i've got 18 other styles we're gonna go through right now you know yeah i mean rapping fast is 
it's not fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's what it is because fast talk has its place in the world, and we need to understand this. When you're rhyming, it takes a double stance against you because, first of all, fast talk is fast talk, right? And then when you're rhyming, you're starting to get into the art of limits. This is stuff that mesmerized people since the Pied Piper. Well, not the Pied Piper because he had a flute. But, you know, <laughs> most people who mesmerize people with fast talk, so to speak, use the same type of art. You know what I mean? They, say, they bedazzle people with a certain way that they use their words, in a sense, and it's starting to appear in hip-hop a bit. I'm noticing that. I don't really like that because you can go hella fast and it allows you not to have no lyrics. Like some people be like, I go when I flow, when I show, when I grow. And it don't <laughs> matter. As long as they said it really, really fast, it's okay to people. And I'm like, that's not it to me. That's not the business. Well, it's interesting because right now we're in a time where, you know, there will actually be major singles that are, you know, for the most part, just barring out and a lot of times really fast technical patterns. But you're right, a lot of them aren't saying shit. Well, again, when we start talking about the science and the art of rap, even when I'm talking in this conversation, there are certain words that connect together and they automatically make you enunciate faster. It's just how it is, you know what I'm saying? For instance, I said, it's just how it is, you know what I'm saying? But when I said, you know what I'm saying, it, it went together so quick, like it's like one word. And certain people are so wise that they've studied the English language enough to already know these connectors and words that no matter at what tempo you're saying it, you're going to say it faster than you say a normal phrase. I mean, Buster Rhymes is one of those, you know, almost all of them. Yeah. Like, every time I, that's one of his favorites. <laughs> and you can say every time I so fast. Just think how fast you can say that. Every time I, you feel me? <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, you don't keep saying every time I over and over again. That's cheating, bro. It's like every time I flow, every time I go, every time I, I'm like, okay. And now I'm not going to start breaking people down because it's all respect to people like Buster. He's an elite. The lyricist, and he's one of the fastest artists I know. But at the same time, if we start talking about the art and the science of this, then we can give a sense of literary criticism without stepping on toes in the field. You know what I mean? It's like, yo, we're analysts, we're scientists, bro. It's not like a diss or nothing. Well, yeah, and I think that that is exactly why, like me and Carnage, are fans of your work is because you are so craft oriented in the way that you speak and it's so analytical the way that your your patterns are put together i mean you can really tell it comes off as effortless but you can tell there's so much thought put behind it you know like the way that you're breaking down these phrases yeah i guess that is what come out to be the ultimate meaning of casual it's like you know what i mean it's not gonna be sloppy it's gonna be highly technical but i noticed that a lot of things i do people seem to take it for granted like it's easy because of the way that I did it. And I might drop a six syllable or a seven syllable that was really hard to think of, but it'll still roll off the tongue so casually, so to speak, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people will miss it. And they'll only catch the last rhyme. Like but some people who tuned into the science is like, yo, rewind that or yo, he just look what he just slipped past us and we wasn't even noticing, you know what I'm saying? 
Yes, I, I just had uh, my friend Elogic on the show from uh, Columbus. I was telling him, I was like, you remind me sometimes of like casual in one of those, the patterns are so unique that I have to rewind the track to get it all, you know? Oh, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is going on exactly, but right? I don't know how many people actually analyze the styles, but I definitely put them out there for guys like myself and yourself and Carnage, you know what I'm saying, the executioner. Ooh, I, I also must commend uh, y'all technical, bro. Like, I hear, you know, sometimes I listen to that, and especially Carnage. He has a lot of stuff that'll make the average MC have to stop and analyze what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I love talking with him we've toured together a lot and i know on his last record he talked about trying to simplify his patterns because they go so over people's head he wanted him to get the message on this record <laughs> yeah uh, that's the thing and once you get so complex it's hard to rap simple my main freestyle vice is always trying to be so technical while I'm freestyling. My brain naturally tries to think of a three or a four syllable rhyme with whatever I said. And if I don't achieve that, I can't keep my thought train as if that's just some overthinking technical grown man stuff. The yeah. way not flowing like as freely as you should be. But being too technical can hurt the art as well. Well, it's true, and even coming back to what you were saying about the whole like casual delivery about it, sometimes, like the last song we did, I feel good about what I came with. I've got some five, six-syllable patterns in there, but like I come from punk rock, and so I'm, I've still always got that extra edge, that energy, and then you come in, and it just flows out of your mouth, rolls off the tongue, and I'm like, it sounds so easy when he does it, though. <laughs> <laughs> It's true because you've got more of an ebb and a flow, you know, as opposed to like uh, Gift of Gab or something, you know. Like, I, I remember hearing you on that uh, Mighty Underdogs record. I thought that was a great pairing. <laughs> yeah, that was really fun. I wish I could remember the verse right now. You had a funny. Uh, it was really comical, and uh, I don't know, but it was just like I was making fun of guys acting hard, but I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember how it went. Laughing that stuff. I remember talking to Gab about that. He was saying, like, they came up with the idea after everyone was talking about, like, how hard they could be. Like, they just wanted to come with some off-the-wall imaginary shit. Yeah, it worked out. I mean, you know, all that stuff is fun. So you dropped a new record, and, uh, man, I think it's one of your best. Uh, Big Head Science. And first of all, just on the title... You credited the producer as Big Head Science, so is that actually the name of your collaborator? Oh, yeah, so actually, yeah, I don't know if I was clear enough in relaying that, that Big Head Science are also producers. 
Okay. I'm a producer, Dame and Rashi, but on Instagram, Nog Chopper Champion, Nog underscore Chopper, like the instant, and then Champion, underscore Champion, and Yash Allah. These are the brothers who inspired the whole movement. And Big Head Science, to me, became a whole thing. Economics, basically, a cool way to get cats to focus on economics. Well, yeah, I mean, you've been coming with a lot of content on your Instagram, just breaking down, like, kind of how to transcend the industry and the traps that we've fallen into being so reliant on this machine that is breaking down. Yeah, and there's all kind of new ways to do things. I just try to inject, uh, I see it because I'm writing a book on it called Big Head Science, and it's a whole new music industry that'll probably be in the world by 2030, maybe 2040. But I'm definitely knowing I'm doing my work to put, bring the uh, materials to the forefront to allow artists to know there are different ways to make money. Just like if somebody 20 years ago was like had the idea of YouTube, not the idea of YouTube, because then all he would have to do is execute it. But maybe the idea of democratizing the video industry through some platform, uh, well, there are other platforms that will allow us to bypass the big funders and the record labels that we needed to gain funds in order to put out a record with a major appeal or a major look. I think you're on to something, too, because I'm reading a book right now called How Music Got Free. You know, they're talking about, like, the German scientists who invented the MP3 in, like, the 80s and 90s. The technology was so old, they were still using floppy disks and their whole idea was that you could have a digital jukebox where you could stream music through telephone lines and you could have a jukebox that played any song you could think of and they got shot down time and time and time again obviously mp3 is beyond household at this point everybody knows it it's ingrained in our dna but it takes those ideas those people telling you like that ain't gonna happen and 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 just believing in something that like no we have to innovate here that's game i didn't even know about the mp3 being created by some german guy or whatever but yeah you're right it is always somebody just that's why i figured that's what it's all about i mean creation i even think theologically that's what's meant by the creator I mean, okay, the creator, yeah, but then you need to be creative to be of the creator. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're not creative, then how are you of the creator? I don't want to go too deep on that. But anyway, I have a a George Orwellian type moment to where I'm actually seeing it in full operation and I could describe it. One really big vice is going to be public albums. Public albums administered through a micro-mechanical licensing deals. It will be a series of micro-mechanical licensing deals because you will prorate the duration of each licensing deal that you offer the people. That's why they're public albums now. Instead of offering licensing to private enterprises like we used to do, record companies or so to speak uh we all just wanted a deal 
Well, now we want to keep ownership of our music, and so the way that you can still get a deal is by licensing that out, and normally they want 50%. Well, in my idea, I'm like, why give one person 50% of your record? Why not give 50 people 1% of your record? And not even a record. Why not give 50 people 1% of a song? And then have a 10-song album where you can give out 500 points on that album. I mean, you can sell them for whatever money you need. You know, so whatever you can prove it is worth. And now what do they get back? The licensing agreement offers them the rights to collect royalties at whatever predetermined rate you decided. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so if you're like, okay, my first contract will be like this. I'm going to give you, we're going to use a very modest artist, for example, say, and we'll also use the most modest, humble contract we could think of. Uh, we'll say... $100 for 1% of a song. And the duration is three years. Meaning, if you put up $100, you're going to get a check for whatever 1% of the song generates for the next three years. I mean, first of all, 100 let's just speak in the worst-case scenario. Like, it's best to always probe the worst-case scenarios. Say somebody invested and you did get your 50 people for that one song, you got the five grand for that one song. You had a 10-song album. You just raised 50 racks up front for a, because you got 50 points for 10 songs. You see what I mean? Yeah. Each song is worth 50 points. That's half of the song. You just raised 50 grand for your project, for your 10-song project without even releasing it yet. And you got 500 people with a vested interest in that project that wants to see it be successful because they want their $100 to turn to like $300. Now, I've ran the numbers on this with some of my numbers, with some of my peers' numbers, and some of Hyro numbers, and I've seen and learned that in three years, people can like triple their money, basically. It's kind of like the evolution of crowdsourcing where, you know, right now there are programs like kickstarter etc where fans can buy in to get perks back on when the project is completed but you're taking it a step further and going yeah sure you we could do that but you can also promote this put this out into the world invest in its future and get a return on it yeah it's similar to kickstarter because it is a mechanism of crowdfunding but it is a hundred percent different because Ain't nothing on Kickstarter where you're going to be earning money from yeah. for the next three years. And that's only the, the most limited, humble contract. Because you can say, okay, for $1,000, you're earning for 10 years. You see what I mean? Yeah. And for this amount, you're earning perpetuity. But it has to make sense. And it has to be proven by prior numbers or what you can project you will be able to do with the money that they put into your project. You see what I mean? Like, if they say, oh, I got 50 racks, you can tell everybody, okay, 25 of that is going back into the project, period. Yeah. This is how 25 is going back. I'm going to do this many videos, I'm going to buy this much promotion on radio, and I'm going to get this people working the video. And again, we only talk about a humble situation where a person might even have a hard time proving that their music is worth that. He's still only asking each investor for 100 bones. They, they, people do that in fundraising. 
Yep. And that's also only a night out on the town, you know what I'm saying? So you'll spend more than a hundred bucks. And so let's think on somebody with a little bit of clout. Let's say a person can prove that they made 50 raps off one song over the past three years. It's even so, it's more humble, a humble $200 a share. He'd be making a hundred grand per album before it was out and that $200 a share, you could do the numbers. I did my main calculations at 30 grand a song because that's the evidence I had. And it came that the person would have tripled their money over three years. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty smart. It's somewhere between uh, crowdsourcing and stock market and streaming and everything. Just like it's taking little bits of things we know and, and trying to yep. trying to get people more invested in the future. I mean, you you also did something interesting with this record. It was like, all right, it's going to be available to stream everywhere for free like normal. But for a hundred bucks, you can get it before anyone else gets it. I mean, I've never seen I anybody mean, do that either. I mean, Yeah, it's true, man. Even uh, even a good friend of mine, actually, he made the beat on the the first song we did together. But uh, uh, yeah, my dude Webb, he used to play in a metal band years ago, like maybe almost 20 years ago. And uh, 
even just like last month, he got a check for almost a grand from one record he did 18 years ago or some shit. It's like, yep. it's just kind of applying that logic to crowdsourcing, you know, it's kind of great. Yeah, you're right. And also, uh, people don't think it's a work on songs, but Spotify pays and they got all type of different playlists. Every playlist ain't, ain't the newest stuff out right today. Some playlists are like, it's from 20 years ago and you might want to get put on that. It still pays the money, you know what I mean? And so, Oh yeah, man. Even this book I'm reading right now, they talk about like when the platforms changed, and everything went to CD, well, then these labels are making the majority of their earnings just on people buying the same back catalog shit again in a new format, you know? Or it's like when a movie is remastered and now it's on 4K. Well, you already bought the Blu-ray, you already bought the DVD, you already bought the VHS, you've bought this movie four times. Exactly. You need it on new mediums. That's another reason to switch to technology. I mean, it was like analytical, like, they wish a new one come out right now so you could buy Michael Jackson record over again. Yep, exactly. Well, hey, man, I really uh, appreciate your time. I think the new record is fucking awesome. I mean, just from the the opening line, you, you got back with the superhero landing. It's just like it's charged, it's energetic, it's intelligent, and you got that epic posse cut on there, like Ghostface and all them. I mean, it's really a great record. I'm hoping... With all this we're talking about, are you going to do a physical release of this, by the way? Because I really want to buy that CD. Yeah, I'm going to eventually do a physical release of it. But you know what, though? This is what's something I want people to understand. I'm at the point where my art is 100% art. It's an old saying that when art meets commerce, something has to give. Yeah. And for me, it's not ever the art. For instance, I didn't want to wait until I can get it in a tangible form to release the music. I wanted to release the music on a vibe. On a, I'm going to release my album today. Yeah. Because it's art to me. I mean, again, with COVID-19 slowing up the process, it was hard to talk to all these plants. It wouldn't have been out still. And so, again, for the collector and for the supporter, it's always, you know, I'm going to put it, in those tangible forms, but a lot of those tangible forms, we do it for people who really love and respect the art, but it really ain't that much profitable no more. You'd be having a warehouse full of CDs. Well, uh, again, thanks for uh, chatting with me. I, I, I love getting technical about this shit. Thanks for everything. Thanks for keeping me tuned in, and uh, until next time. All right, that is our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. Huge shout out to Casual for taking the time to drop some veteran knowledge on us here at the show. If you like it, please take a screenshot, help spread the word, let people know that you're listening. We're going to come back with uh, Paul Miner, record producer and former member of Death by Stereo. But first, I'm going to leave you with a track from the new album, Big Head Science from Casual, reminding you that he could eat up any rapper in your top 10. This is the barcode. Yeah.
DNC. I house niggas like Airbnb for a fair and a fee. The bars are incendiary. You gon' need every ghost rider in the cemetery. Each bar cold like I'm itemizing inventory. Gold bars, Federal Reserve on that pedal of the mama. Got that metal in her purse. Your niggas had to settle for your verse. We circulate cheddar like the ghetto on the first. Red alert when that metal burst. Worse, you gon' get a hearse first. We disperse, show excursion. Intel pinpoint high ranks and we flank them to kidnap niggas with kid raps and make them study the syllable structure. I'm killing you fucks with minimal subliminal subjects. I crush shit. Yeah, man. Shut up and get up out of here. You to catch me, it'll take about a year. At light speed, you ain't like me. I wouldn't work with you. We spike Lee and Ice T. My price be a nice fee, entice me. I've been one of the fittest to get his businesses right, B. I might be the goat from quotes I wrote nightly. She invite me to stroke up Hogan broke right, B. Behind you, I never mind you. Cause on the list of rap gods, I never find I can sneak milk out the breast of a lion. 